Hello and welcome to the delicious recipe here on uh, UPRN and you can check us out on uh, UFO Paranormal Radio, UFO Paranormal Radio, that's the one on YouTube and UFO Gods and Extraterrestrials, that's also on YouTube and we're on iHeart, iCloud, SoundCloud, uh, Speaker Hub and all the rest of the stuff there. It's a little bit noisy outside here, I almost sound like a, I'm like a, a radio broadcaster out on the scene, but uh, everybody was asked, says, hey Dell." Farmer in the Dell, what are you doing there? You're a cook, you're a chef, you're now you're a butcher. And look at this, we did this whole garden here and uh, Laura Lee put all the fairy stuff in there and that, and then the last day ended up, uh, did some work and I'm just gonna run through the house very quickly and you can hear that door slam. And I got the dog and the cat down here, jumping over their uh, stuff and planted more stuff out here in the back so i've been busy doing stuff and the dog went out okay but uh and she's in but uh anyways from that this is a delicious recipe where we throw everything in the pot and we see how it tastes at the end maybe you find an ingredient that you like and you can go from there but i want to reintroduce again to a special person mr paul anthony wallace author that uh he's written uh this is his third book in this series i which it is and uh echoes of eden and this is a self-published book and i encourage everybody out there support and just go out and buy the book because it's got a lot of really interesting stuff in there and it's just this whole part about where do we come from how did we get here what is everything about and it's a very interesting uh, depiction story of this. And there's a lot of stuff out there that I think people are asking questions about this. And I, I really want to welcome you back. G'day, Dale. Thanks for having me back. Yes. I love your new garden. It looks awesome. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. So we were last time, and I, I know uh, last time we sort of got cut off partway through. But we did. Yeah. So with uh, Echoes of Eden, what it sounds like, like I wrote this stuff down there. What secrets were buried in the past, ET contact or outside intervention that could have, because people get sort of a little bit spooky now about the ET stuff. People get sort of like uh, they changed the word UFO to UAP and trying to spin stuff and. I'm not sure what it is, and 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 the U.S. government just said that uh, out of uh, the the aerial phenomenon that they've seen there is that 10% they don't know now who it is. Yes, yes. So this is what's coming out in the Senate briefings and the congressional hearings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, on first glance, it it sounds like. You know, nothing very much is is in the pot. You listen a bit more closely, and you realise that there has been an official acknowledgement now of the UFO phenomenon in yep. the preliminary assessment paper. The Pentagon said that every six weeks, U.S. military activity is interfered with by UFO encounters, to use the traditional phraseology mm -hmm. for it. And that report said there was zero evidence that those UFOs were the technology of black ops at home or covert operations of foreign powers. So that's quite 
an emphatic um, statement that's sort of hidden in what looks like a report about nothing. But as to how scary that is, this is where I enjoy going back to our ancestral narratives because I think they give a bigger context for this story. I think today, <clears throat> if I say the word alien, uh, or even for some, the word UFO, it conjures up something scary. Mm -hmm. If I say the word alien, people will think, oh, yes, alien versus predator, or invasion of the body snatchers, or, <laughs> or Independence Day, or Mars attacks. Yeah. It conjures up this ter terrifying image of what first contact might look like. Mm -hmm. But when we listen to ancestral narratives, the stories of origins curated by cultures all around the world, they do talk about contact with non-human entities, contact in the deep past mm -hmm. when we were visited and helped and nurtured by some and colonized and governed by others. And so there's a spectrum of contact experiences that we can find when we go to the past and listen to what our ancestors had to say. And within that spectrum, yes, there are some darker threads and some scarier uh, scenarios. Mm -hmm. But there's also something very reassuring, I find, and that is that almost every culture around the world has a story of first contact that is benevolent, a story that says our culture began when beautiful people came from the stars and sat with our ancestors and taught us how to live in balance with the planet, how to live on the planet's surface and know what plants are good for food and which are good to avoid, mm -hmm. which are good for medicines, which are good for higher consciousness. Some culture stories are even more developed. They'll say these visitors taught us how to turn naturally occurring plants into crops and right. how to turn the crops into food and yeah. how to turn the crops into beer. Yeah. And then you go to the Babylonian story, it goes even further and they say these beautiful people who were not human told us how to create uh, writing, mathematics, mm -hmm. literature, legal systems, banking, civil engineering, sanitation, and how to become a civilization on planet Earth. Okay, here's so a these I just want to, a question out of that part there. It said, so out of that part there, uh, you have the, the, the Tower of Babel, you have the fallen angels that were supposed to be in the Bible that went and taught a lot of this stuff. How did everybody get all these different languages then? Different languages. Oh, that's a really intriguing topic. Languages was my first love. Before I uh, went to university and studied theology, I went to university and studied languages, the University of Bath. And at that time, a long time ago now, in the 1980s, um, there was a growing consensus that there was evidence pointing to a mother language for all the languages on planet Earth. By that point, there was data strongly suggesting three source languages for all the languages on, on mm -hmm. the planet. And there were a few who were saying, we think there's evidence there's a common ancestor for the three. So that's all very intriguing. The further back in time you go looking at language, the more ordered and regular it becomes. And so the history of language is, in one sense, a story of proliferation and degradation 
that the language gets more messed up, harder to learn, harder to learn each other's languages. Yeah. The further you go back, the more orderly, the easier it was for us to understand each other. So when I heard that at university, my ears pricked up because I thought, oh, well, that sounds a bit like the Babel story, where in the beginning we could all understand each other. Yeah. Well, there are lots of layers to the Babel story, and some layers might be about spoken language. Uh, other layers may be about our intelligence as a species and our technological mm. ability. It was, after all, our technological ability in mm. the Babel story that got us bombed back into a pre-Stone Age condition. When you read the biblical story along the Sumerian story, alongside that, which I believe is the source story, the two stories finesse each other. And they strongly imply that the problem at Babel wasn't that we'd breached zoning laws and built a building that was too tall. Right. With, with the whole thing, for people that are listening out there, the part was is that the people wanted to build something to get up to the heavens. To, to reach get... the heavens. That's right. what the story says. That's right. right. And so in the Bible, it says they were punished for that by um, something is done to them, a neurological interference so they can no longer speak to each other and understand right. each other. Yeah. And so that you have to stop and think, oh, what does that mean? Does mm -hmm. that mean we had higher abilities in communication, more telepathic communication, we lost that? Or does it really mean we all spoke the language, the same language, and then we lost our facility in language and had to re-evolve it. Either way, it's a profoundly violent thing to do to a society. And the intention was to take from us the ability to reproduce one of those structures. Right. But well, as I say, when you read the source narrative, which is the Sumerian, mm -hmm. and you go to the root meanings of the words in the Hebrew, it makes it fairly clear hard to avoid that what was built the issue wasn't that the building was too tall the issue was that it was technology to get us into space that this was the technology of a spacefaring right. civilization mm -hmm. the observers who were dispatched from it in the sumerian story were dispatched to their stations in the stars mm -hmm. the word babel means gateway for the powerful ones Oh wow! So I've come to the conclusion that that's actually the story of a stargate in what would today be Iraq, and that that was what had to be destroyed or hidden or gotten rid of, and that is what our visitors didn't want to see on planet Earth. They didn't want to see a spacefaring human race. Do you think? Okay, I'm, this this is my theory. It's not probably not yours, or whatever. But the reason that pyramids are built up and stuff like that. It's like a pinnacle going up towards something to reach up higher above to an elevation above from where your station is in life. And that's the whole thing with a, with a monarchy or stuff like that is that they always are the pyramid, right? That somebody at top of the pyramid, right? And that's sort of a, that, that a part of what the, the story of the Tower of Babel was a part that the lower people could also walk up there. They built it up and they could also get all the way up to the top. They get to the heavens and be in converse with whatever God or who God is, right? To get out of the firmament and move up to the better place. Well, that's a very interesting idea. So it's a more political way of reading the story. Okay. 
Okay. But the thing is, those, let's let's get back to your book, okay? Because <laughs> I, I know we'll 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 go off on tangents here, and I I really, Echoes of Eden. Let's go from the beginning of that. So the beginning of Echoes of Eden was really, uh, was really within myself. I knew that I'd left some things hanging. Okay. at the end of Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. And yeah. so the end of Escaping from Eden, the, in that book, I take the reader with me as I show how my world changed, how I went from a world of narrow Christian orthodoxy to one that now talks about paleocontact. And paleocontact is the theory that our ancestors had contact in right. the deep past. Mm -hmm. And my route is through Bible translation. So in Escaping from Eden, I go to the anomalies and the stories we tell from the biblical stories and show how those anomalies are there because of translation issues. And that when we favor the root meanings of words, we peel back centuries of assumption and presupposition, get back to the original text, and a totally different story emerges of who we are Mm -hmm. um, and what our place is in the cosmos. And so that's the journey we go on in Escaping from Eden. But by the end of that book, I show that a, a different story of human origins has immediate implications for our understanding of ourselves today and our understanding of human potential. What is possible for us if the stories of paleocontact are true? And I sort of left that question a bit hanging and also left it a bit hanging well where does that leave a person of faith who, who goes into paleo contact uh with me through that route and comes away thinking well so what are the implications for what i believe about god or about jesus or about humanity in that light what happens to my ideas about faith and spirituality so in the scars of eden i follow up on that but then I drill down into the question of what are the psychological and geopolitical after effects of paleo contact? What are the clues, not only in our stories, but in the way we've lived as a human society that we did indeed have contact? What are the implications of that? And how do we live in the light of that information? So by the time we get to the end of the scars of Eden, I've realized that the answers to many of these questions are in our world of ancestral narratives and world mm. mythologies. And that when you go there and listen with a respectful ear to what our ancestors had to say, you realize that stories of paleo contact and stories about human potential and protocols for accessing higher levels of consciousness and intelligence engaging higher cognitive abilities they're absolutely all intertwined in the ancestral stories and so echoes of eden goes back and says well let's have a listen to those and as we do that we realize there is a body of information that repeats in indigenous cultures around the world exactly that yep. in in every age there's an expression of it and in every age, there is an attempt to suppress it and destroy it. And sometimes the work of the powers of the day 
uh, has been very, very brutal and genocidal to try and get rid of this information that mm -hmm. I now refer to as the wisdom of the ages. And the efforts that have been gone to to extinguish indigenous traditions, indigenous initiation, in order to extinguish indigenous information, well, that in itself is a smoking gun that says, look here, what is the power of this information that it has uh, drawn such fire through the ages? And what is its power that it's never destroyed, that it always resurfaces? I just, uh, just for the people out listening there too, is also, you can watch uh, Paul Anthony Wallace. He's got the channel, The Fifth Kind. And I just watched this uh, last video that you had uploaded there. And it was about an indigenous uh, culture that uh, had no idea about technology, but they were uh, they witnessed uh, planes during World War II flying over, uh, and so now they have like they make their dresses or their uh, their ancestral dresses and that and do uh, dances for their ceremonies that look like B fifty two bombers or whatever, and they build these planes out there because they've never experienced it and it's it was uh, it was fascinating that's another channel there are people out there listening the fifth kind you can check it out on uh, youtube and plus also uh get uh paul's uh, new book echoes of eden there too and uh, there's a lot of information out there support and uh and check it out what's interesting about that story and Derek von daniken writes about uh, that experience the cargo cult uh, in, in his books, is it shows how a, people who don't have a technological framework for what they're seeing will find a way of curating the memory of what happened, mm. the memory of what they saw and heard. And then it also shows how that can morph into what looks to an outsider like worship, uh, like religion. Right. Whereas, in fact, at, at root, it isn't something religious. It's the it's the maintaining of a memory that has transformed their understanding of the world they live in. Mm -hmm. And you can find that all over the place. And I argue in Echoes of Eden that you can find it in Judaism, too, that many of the um, ceremonies that were suppressed by the Jewish kings and high priesthoods were not really idolatry, to use that word. It wasn't that they were worshipping false gods. What was actually happening was they were commemorating first contact. And so the Asherah cult in the uh, Hebrew story was a maintenance of the memory of first contact with an entity who taught their ancestors all the secrets of agronomy, what we were talking about earlier. See, it's there in the Hebrew story as well. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the reign of King Josiah in the 7th century BCE and to the final redaction that produced the Old Testament as we know it, the acknowledgement of other powerful entities, advanced beings, paleocontact, had to be airbrushed out because the agenda was to turn this into a story of monotheism okay. and all the rituals and ceremonies that commemorated that moment of first contact were being stamped out by the temple authorities but uh, reread the hebrew canon and you realize 
that Judaism had carried this memory for a long, 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 long time. And the prophets had been going on about this for a long, long time, felt it needed to be cleaned up for a long time, the way the story is told now. And what you see as the prophets and the kings and the high priests come in and say, we've got to clean all this up. We're only going to worship our God, Yahweh. It yeah. absolutely mirrors what I've experienced in other parts of the world in my own lifetime. Mm -hmm. So when I went to Brazil in the 1980s, there were local commemorations of paleo contact at Harvest Festival time. And Pope John Paul II was trying to clean all that up, get rid of it, extinguish the indigenous mm -hmm. memory, get rid of the indigenous elements of Harvest Festival, get rid of the West African elements. Because... They were the ones that told of paleo contact. All he wanted to see left was the story brought in by the um, the Portuguese, the Catholic story. Right, and the, the part, like uh, there's uh, there's three points here that, I, and, and I know we'll probably touch on uh, Fatima, that whole story about that, where there was alien contact with the three little girls that there, and there was a message that was given to the Catholic Church. I like for me, uh, sorry, there are people that are listening there. I have a very uh, uh, sort of a skewed view on uh, Roman Catholicism. I think that's a very evil organization, but I think it's sort of been twisted, but uh, it's what it is. And you were also involved in the in the church there, too, as well. I think there's sort of a it's a, a power struggle if you look through history about how the church and uh, state or the monarchy sort of went hand in hand and they raped from the people and took everything and they took taxes and that. But the part about uh, the Nephilim and fallen angels teaching people, uh, this, this is a part that's in the, in the regular Bible that was there that the fallen angels came down. They had sex with human women. And then they also taught them genealogy, geometry, astrology, uh, uh, making weapons and all this stuff. And, was this sort of a concocted story that the church sort of maybe brought in there to so we'll say that uh, civilization bumped up and this is why we got it because of this et contact but we just made it uh like this uh fairy uh elven story that came down of these uh people i know there's there, there was a lot i said there i'm, I'm sorry but uh, well the stories of contact are there in the bible in the hebrew scriptures in the book of enoch um what the church did was really to decide what the core curriculum was going to be and that reflected in in the shaping up of the the new testament canon for instance and what what books would be included which books would be excluded it, it reflected in who of the early church fathers would keep their badge of honor and who would be excommunicated and uh, and pilloried um, because at the beginning christianity was a kaleidoscope of ideas and uh, theologies and experiences which included uh, interdimensional contact which included stories of paleo contact mm -hmm. many of the early church fathers expressly um, uh, believed in the worldview taught by Plato and read the Hebrew scriptures in the light of Plato who taught paleo contact. So when they looked at the Elohim stories in the Hebrew scriptures, they said those are not stories about God. 
those are stories about a different kind of entity. Mm -hmm. But maybe the maybe, Dutch maybe, fathers, maybe, maybe explain uh, Elohim to the listeners out there. Yes, in the Hebrew scriptures, there are many stories about Elohim. And that word is the Bible's oldest word that gets translated as God. But it also gets translated as false God or chieftains or landlords or angels. So you have to ask, how do you know which it is in which text? And the answer is really what's happening in the text. Right. But it leaves the question hanging, why would God be given the same name as all these other kinds of entities, some which may be human, some which may be demonic? What right. sense does that make? Well, the answer to that is that the word Elohim means the powers, the powerful ones. Mm -hmm. So now, shock horror, your, your God character is one of a number of powerful ones. And this is where the, um, the theistic worldview begins to stretch and creak a bit. Fortunately, I remembered enough of my theological training when I was drilling down into these questions to recognize that the Elohim stories are, in fact, the summary form of the sky people stories from out of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria, and that the biblical writers knew those stories and have summed them up in the stories of beginnings particularly Genesis 1 to 11, but it extends all the way through the Hebrew canon. It makes sense of questions that uh, are thrown up by the Ten Commandments, for instance. So when Yahweh, the God character, says, you mustn't serve any of the other powerful ones, you must serve only me. Right. Well, what other powerful ones? Suddenly you realize there are other powerful ones and we have to choose. That's really the call in the Ten Commandments. And then you go to Joshua, who was yeah. the leader who succeeded Moses, and he calls on the people and he says, don't serve the powerful ones of Egypt. Don't serve the powerful ones our ancestors did in Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. You serve only Yahweh. And that, that comes just, into, what, what is the, the, the first one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shall never... Uh, Serve have, any God, but have me. no other powerful ones, no other Elohim before me. And then the second one is that thou shall never use the Yeah, don't even depict in, them. Yeah, don't, don't bow down to them. Don't even draw pictures of them. <laughs> and don't use so the that, Lord's name in vain. And <laughs> so there has to be a great forgetting of yes. these other entities. Mm -hmm. Then Joshua says, don't serve them. And even in the way he says that, there's a, a kind of an equivalence being implied there. When you look at the names of the entities, that equivalence is even clearer. Joshua is saying, don't serve Achech, the dragon entity of Egypt. Serve Yahweh, the entity that rules over us. Well, those names sound a bit similar, don't they? Achech, Yahweh. And yeah. that's that's the earlier pronoun pronunciation of Yahweh in Proto-Northwest Semitic, from which we get Hebrew. The H was sounded like, <laughs> and and that sound <laughs> or <laughs> recurs in narratives all around the world that speak of a time when our ancestors were ruled over by entities that were not human. Mm -hmm. there, there comes that's a question the family of stories the Hebrew stories fit into. 
there, there comes a question there. You just mentioned that there. Now you said dragon. Now that comes up in very many uh, texts there. Firebird, dragon, and like in China, or China, well, even in throughout. Oh, yes. That, that, that yeah, sort the, of, even in even in uh, even in the Bible, the dragon, the serpent, uh, the fiery serpent. That that I'm, I'm I know we're sort of flying all over the place here, but that like that's sort of a, a big thing that's even uh, in anime and cartoons there today, and it's sort of like uh, dragons. Yeah. They're like happy and evil. Well, all around the world, uh, there are these dragon stories. Stories that say our ancestors were once governed over by entities that were not human and that we would describe as dragons. They were reptilian-like, or they were reptilians with feathers. Now, that's a very curious thing to say. We don't see many reptilians with feathers to think that up. But the fact that the Chinese said it and the Mesoamerican cultures said it ought to get our attention. So if I say feathered serpent, um, that language takes us to the Mayan story and to a character called Kukul Khan, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Kukumats, a.k.a. Um, Quetzalcoatl. And again, you've got the k, k in the dragon story. Yeah. You go to Japan, you've got k -ch. You've got the Kuchedra, the Ikuchi. You go to Spain and Portugal, it's the Coca. Go to Georgia, it's the Colchis. Mm -hmm. So the dragon stories and this sound go together. K -k. So is it then that our ancestors have not only remembered this period of paleo contact, they've remembered either a name or a sound that was associated with these other entities? And as I say, the Hebrew stories fit within that. Yahweh fits with the dragon narrative. It's, it's so similar to Achech, who was a dragon in the Egyptian story. And there are portions of the Bible where Yahweh describes himself, or others describe him, and you've got physical attributes. You've got a long snout. You've got the skin described. You've got the flight wings described. You've got the tail described. It's mentioned that if you displease it, there's a destruction by fire that you can expect from it. And mm -hmm. that repeats in cultures all around the world, whether you go to China, Wales, Mesoamerica, that's there. Yeah. And so you have to ask, what is the likelihood that every culture around the world would dream up the same scenario, describe the entities in the same way, say they looked and sounded the same mm -hmm. and behaved the same way. They all live off beef, and want gold and virgin girls, whatever yeah. culture you go to, that's, that's what they want. And the people's job is to keep them supplied with those things. Right. And if for one moment you think, oh no, that's really just a ploy, mm. it's the priests who want the beef, the virgin girls and the gold. Right. Well, that's not the case when you put the dragon stories of the Hebrew canon alongside Mm -hmm. The story of Bell and the Dragon, which is part of the extended Hebrew canon of the Septuagint. Bell and the Dragon, the familiar character of Daniel, yeah, yeah. Daniel in the lion's den, that guy, yeah. kills the Babylonians' dragon, who they keep in a tent. Uh, but the priests pretend he's not been killed. 
so that they can carry on eating the beef and spending the gold and enjoying the virgin girls that the people are supplying, thinking the dragon's still there. And so the Hebrews tell the story laughing at the Babylonians because they're pretending they have a dragon in their tent, whereas the Hebrew people really do have one. That's the punchline of that story. And wow. so that clues you straight away. No, this is not. <laughs> this is no, not a metaphor. It's not poetry. Yeah. It's um, it's talking Subject about something huge. very concrete, <laughs> yes. and it doesn't belong in our conventional idea of what the Bible is about. <laughs> when, when you when you seen that 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 uh, sound, <laughs> it reminds me, and because. Uh, I'm not really well off. I don't have uh, whatever great vehicles and I have, uh, I just work with what I have. Starting a car or starting a chainsaw or starting a, an old piece of machinery when you're trying to, oh, oh yes. As, as the hour is going out there. And that sort of reminds me of like uh, maybe this uh, part that the, maybe the, the ancient people heard it as this vehicle started starting up and it's like coughing as it's before it goes and roars to the fiery engine that it goes. So they go on. Yes. Well, if they had rough technology, I, uh, I can certainly picture that. <laughs> and uh, to be fair, there are moments when some of the dragon narratives uh, do sound like machinery. So if you go to the Popol Vuh and you hear some of the entities described there, mm -hmm. when you've got a dragon-like figure that's described as having metallic skin, Mm -hmm. with jewels or lights on the skin yeah, and that flies in the night sky with a fire trail behind it that's brighter than the moon, well, we might read that and say, I think that's technology. I think I can picture that. That's, yeah. that's some kind of a, 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 a space shuttle you're looking at. And so there are stories that could become dragon stories that are really memories of technology. But I think there are many where you've got very precise behavior described and again you've got snout skin feathers yep. tail you've got conversations then i think you're looking at a biological entity and it's it's difficult to get away from that i guess that's the part is that uh people and the, this goes back to the part of the story there that you did on the fifth kind that you, when you did there uh with eric von Tannikin about people describing uh they can only describe what they know right yes they can only use language that they know so that exactly. can relate the story forward because you can't just make exactly. up words right? that's exactly right and this is why it's so wonderful that we can go back to the uh, original hebrew uh, in the hebrew stories reread them and we have a technological frame of reference for some of what we read Mm -hmm. that 500 years ago a bible translator would not have had right so if you go to the encounter that moses has with yahweh when yahweh lands in his craft on the mountaintop or you go to the encounter between ezekiel and the life form who looks like a human being yeah. this is to translate the terms yeah well when we read those texts we know we have the concept of a wormhole we yeah. know what a rocket launch looks and sounds like. We yeah. have the word for close encounter. We have the word for space shuttle, so on and so forth. And our ancestors 500 years ago had none of that language. 
And so they had to describe technological phenomena in the text as if they were what? Religious experiences, spiritual experiences. And so it distorts what's happening in the text. Mm -hmm. Now we can go back to Moses' encounter. And when the when when Moses says to Yahweh, can I see your big heavy thing? And Yahweh says, no, you can't see the big heavy thing out in the open. Uh, if it moves while you're in the open, it'll be killed. You'll be killed. Right, so right. you'll have to be sheltered when the equipment launches. And mm. that's that's the root words of what's going on in the text. And it makes mm -hmm. sense to anyone who's seen a rocket launch. Of course, you can't be in the open right. when that launches. Of course, you've got to be sheltered somewhere. When I saw the um, USS Discovery launch back in 1994, I think it was, Mm -hmm. We had to be three miles uh, away, at least. I think the technicians were three miles away behind reinforced concrete. You can't oh, be yeah. in the open <laughs> when it launched. So it all makes sense to us in a okay. way that our ancestors only puzzled over. Well, it's the same thing as when the U.S. was uh, testing uh, 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 nuclear bombs there in the Nevada desert there. They were behind huge concrete de uh, zones. But the thing is, it was, uh, here's another part of the story here. Enoch. Now, Enoch was, uh, there's a huge part that's non-canonical that uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church does not want to recognize as being scripture. But in the Ethiopian uh, uh, church, they do consider those books as, uh, as canonical, I guess. But there's a yes. part of the story where he goes off and he is told, and there, well, there, well, the story of Jubilees, the giants, the everything that goes through there. I think there's like nine books. It's, there's a lot. I've I've read for four years about this stuff. And why is that not put in there? Well, you're right. The uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Church has always um, maintained the Book of Enoch within the canon of Scripture. Uh, the Western Church doesn't. Um, Although, when you read Genesis 6, which is the hybridization story in the Bible, mm -hmm. when these uh, Bene Elohim, ones like the powerful ones, come and uh, hybridize with human females, the way that story is told in Genesis 6, it's told so swiftly that the writer seems to think we already know the story. So I think that writer assumes we know what's in the book of Enoch because it unpacks that whole episode in great detail. And then in the New Testament, the author of uh, Jude uh, assumes that we know the book of Enoch. And when he refers to the Enoch we read in the book of Genesis, mm -hmm. he quotes from the book of Enoch word for word. So right. That should point any Bible reader to the book of Enoch and say, you might want to read this for some background information here. Why wasn't it included in the West? Well, it's a very interesting cocktail of information, is well, the book even, of Enoch. It's even like the, the, the story of Job in the whale, too, right? That was, it. That well, was included, but the, the part of Enoch wasn't. Well, indeed. I think the challenge with Enoch is that it, contains a lot in it that isn't core curriculum for Judaism or Christianity. Okay. It's a bit like we were just saying where you've got a translator 500 years ago trying to translate a text that's about technology 
Well, I think you can see the same struggle in the Book of Enoch, where you've got a writer who's got a primitive worldview trying to report experiences and information that really sits uncomfortably with that worldview. So you've got a strange mixture of a writer who at one moment seems to be a flat earther picturing a, 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 a dome over the top of the flat earth. <laughs> the and firmament then, and then the four pillars. I, I yeah. think that's what I love where the flat earthers get their part. They go, they take Bible stuff and then they go, hey, yeah. look at uh, this uh, part there, the level doesn't move. They don't understand that you're, you're on a globe. But then, yes, uh, but then in another moment, he's describing beings who've come from beyond the firmament. Right. Uh, that are non-human beings. They come and do the hybridizing. They also come and they do what we mentioned before, which is the nurturing of the human race, teaching yeah. us agriculture, teaching yeah. us how to live uh, right. in a non-animal way on the planet's surface, how to live as a civilization. And so you've got a whole mixture of stuff going on there, including the paleo contact stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of those things that was not going to make core curriculum. And it's probably the main reason the Book of Enoch didn't get in to the canon of scripture that we're all familiar with. Well, the part there that, if I, if I remember this correctly, has been a little bit, bit since I've read it there, but as he's going up there and he's going up the stairs as he's going through there and the angels that gave the information to the human beings to make them, I guess, more sentient or more intelligent, they were put into this sort of purgatory for the rest of his life. And that's as he's walking up the stairs and going up there and, and he goes through the different levels. So there was a huge thing, whether you want to call the gods, the, the powerful ones, uh, that they did something wrong. The ones. Oh, that yes. Yes, that's right. There's a breach of the prime directive mm -hmm. in that story. And it's, it's spelled out in very strong terms that there was an agreement of non interference clearly in place prior to the hybridization. Mm -hmm. Cultures all around the world have a recollection of this moment of hybridization and they all say it created a huge stink among the advanced beings who were managing project earth right in in genesis 6 it's the reason behind the flood because um the hybridization had to be destroyed this was just so offensive to the powers who were governing project earth at that time but cultures all around the world say there was a rule that was broken that was to do with non-interference, non-contact when the hybridization happened. It's yeah. a very odd thing for our primitive ancestors to, to think up. But I think if you, watch, if you watch Star Trek and you think of the prime directive there, it's kind of a version of that. Right. Yeah. And there's an a, a agreement that has to do with non-interference, non-disclosure through mm -hmm. the ages. And that might go some way to explaining why our, our own governing powers have been so um, keen on extinguishing stories of contact and right. of uh, cosmic company. And so uh, we've, we got only a couple of minutes left there. So why would you think that a governing body would not think that they think that the rest of the people here are all uh, stupid, 
maybe or they they couldn't handle the part that there might be life out there even though that they with technology right now and everybody seeing all that stuff that there might be something more off of this planet than here or maybe interdimensionally that's traveling in and out and it'd be like hey well maybe the ghost is actually under the bed well right now i think with the congressional hearings and the senate briefings we're seeing that there's a push pull in the story of disclosure that mm -hmm. within the pentagon for instance there are some who would like to see more disclosure and some who would like to see less so we saw the push yeah. really spearheaded by chris mellon of getting the senate briefings happening and then we saw the pull when we saw what a tiny remit uh, had been given to that paper and it's the same in covert government there'd be some who'd say i think we can tell people more and some would say no i think we should tell them less right but i think the essential dynamic of non-disclosure the secrecy in which uh contact is maintained may not have originated with with our own governments i think if there's an agreement among our cosmic neighbors not to self-disclose and that's what hayama shed said the brigadier general who is space security chief for israel for 27 years right he said they've chosen not to self-disclose until we all have a better understanding of what space is which is an intriguing phrase so if they've decided then it means even our covert government isn't at liberty to decide this they're going to tell everyone everything that's going on well that's a but good it, point that's a, that's a good point to end on there for people that are listening there i want to thank you uh, paul anthony wallace for uh, coming on here his book uh, echoes of eden self-published go out and buy that thing there tell them uh, paul where they can find your stuff there we got about a one minute sure. left here okay go to amazon kindle barnes and noble high book depository wherever books are sold you'll find echoes of eden the scars of eden and escaping from eden yeah. get hold of those and if you want to talk to me you can find me on the fifth kind or the paul wallace channel on youtube or at paulanthonywallace.com Awesome. That that was good. You know what? I had such a great time and I really appreciate you coming back on after we had that last part that happened in <laughs> April. You know what? No worries. I, I really love talking to you and there's so much more that I wish my show was two hours because we could go and delve into so many other things. And guess what? Laura Lee's going to show up here and she's going to. Hi, Laura Lee. <laughs> I can't hear you because you got headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my wife there, anyways. So, but this has been the delicious recipe here on UPRN. You saw my gardens that we did and the fairy gardens that I did at the beginning, and I gave it all there. And like I said, we throw everything in the pot. You take what you want, ingredients that you need, make something yourself, or just eat the, eat the food. And I want to thank you all for uh, enjoying and. Uh, We'll see you all next Thursday.